Welcome to The How, Channeling Water Solutions, a podcast from W12 Plus Programs. The How focuses on water solutions and the people behind them from around the world. We're excited to bring to you this season a series of conversations, each with two guests with two different viewpoints, on some of the most pressing water challenges facing the world today. From W12 Plus Programs, I'm your host, Judy Jane. My co-host, Dakota Victoria Splichilova, will join us in one moment. In this episode, we speak with Maheen Malik, the Pakistan Country Coordinator for the Alliance for Water Stewardship, and Manisha Kairali, a social entrepreneur working at the ecological intersection of rural craft and food cultures. Manisha also goes by the name Molly. India and Pakistan are some of the world's largest producers of cotton. If you are wearing a cotton shirt right now, it likely came from India or Pakistan. The two countries, however, are also some of the most vulnerable places in the world to climate change and water stress. What does water stewardship mean for suppliers, brands, and communities in this part of the world? What can indigenous perspectives around cotton, water, and hand looming teach us? And what does it mean to choose to engage with something with our whole body and hands, the way hand looming does? Without further ado, here are Maheen and Manisha. Maheen, Molly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Judy. Thank you. For this episode, I wanted to start off with a check-in question for each of us to answer and talk about. So fashion is something we all wear, and I was wondering, what is your personal relationship with fashion and clothing? When you get dressed in the morning, is that something you think a lot about, or you just put on a shirt and go? So I'll go first. I actually really do like fashion, which might surprise a lot of my friends. Um, When I was younger, for about a year, I wanted to be a fashion designer, and I sketched out outfits on my... um, on my sketchbook and I it's just a, it's just a nice way for me to express myself I'm a very creative person and so I always am thinking of what looks good and what feels good for me so how about we hear from Dakota Maheen and then uh, Molly I think fashion for me is is a very big form of expression uh, and coupled with that is how I obtain whatever pieces I have I um i have a very strong ethic when it comes to slow fashion in particular so i don't actually i've done this for probably about about seven years now i buy new clothes if they are made by the person that i meet um and so for example like what i'm wearing now was made where i'm currently based in merida yucatan mexico uh, and so I don't have a lot of pieces. I have very select pieces and they stay with me forever. So if we're talking slow fashion and the value of, of what I put in or what I put out, like my buying power and how I express myself, I'm very selective. And, and that just goes along with other things in my life, but I'm very selective with my fashion. And I like colors, um, obviously, like maybe I'm wearing black today, but I usually put a lot of color and a lot of expression into what I'm wearing. And it really matters to me that I'm able to use my buying power to select something that makes a difference in that particular person's life who's making it. And then also be like in a greater scheme, like globally. So fashion means a lot to me too. Um, thanks for letting me share. Yes. So I actually believe that is very true. And I could kind of resonate with something that you've said, Judy, as well as with uh, what Dakota has just said. And I think fashion is something that kind of tends to, you know, define who you are as a person. So for me, I'd agree with Dakota. I also tend to buy those particular pieces, which I think can be worn again and again. So they tend to be in my wardrobe for a really long time. But I'm also somebody who tends to go into my 
elders wardrobes which is going into my mother's wardrobe or my father's wardrobe or my grandparents wardrobe to find pieces which i could kind of recycle and trust me there've been so many pieces from having customized my grandfather's pants to going into my father-in-law's closet to check out a couple of his, you know a couple of his sweaters that i can be that can be worn by me and which is very interesting because by the end of the day the idea and the notion that fashion repeats itself is so true but also that the quality that you know those material have and they've had for those that you know how much they've kind of lasted and then i am able to use those pieces now is also very interesting and it's always something that you know gets those head turned i've always being asked you know where did you get that from and you'd be very it's very interesting to tell them oh i got that from my grandparents wardrobe and they'll be completely surprised from that answer because <laughs> that's very hard to do but also i think from a community point of view usually pakistanis or south asians we're very we're very recycling oriented we never tend to throw pieces out we tend to use them if you're wearing it in the morning and if it's worn it's a little worn out we'll wear it as a night suit if it's further worn out we'd use it as a cleaning so it's very multi purpose so i think the idea of having to use those pieces again and again is something that is already in our system so i completely agree fashion kind of gives you that uh, you know way to express yourselves but for me i think my fashion i've kind of developed it over a period of a couple of years but i think for now i think modesty is a big part of my dressing sense as well and it kind of overtakes me of how i define it but i think i'd go on pinterest pin interest a number of times to see how i could kind of couple those pieces and use them again and again i don't know if if uh, if this is the if this is the right answer because we're talking about fashion which is usually a visual it's a visual idea that we have of what fashion is uh but i think for me growing up it's more physical like actual tactile texture and comfort so for me i think i've always been attracted to color and playing with color working with color has been something that i've grown up with but clothing color clothing color jewelry an ensemble putting it all together i think was um kind of had a shape and grew into a certain understanding in my late teenage and i completely resonate with what uh, mahin has just said it is the same thing reuse recycle and so a sari gets converted into kurtas lehengas shirts a blanket tablecloth swing for a baby an immediate sudden you know bathroom in the field you know whatever there's multiple uses of just that 5 odd meters of fabric of a sari and so you don't see it as one piece of fashion it it has many lives um and many uses but i still want to bring it back into a more physical sense of what fashion is um which is to my in my understanding real fashion is real fiber real fibers and so i felt very unfashionable in synthetic fibers i just didn't feel myself so that's something um so synthetic fiber and textile in india is not very old uh it's actually more rampant now with very cheap chinese production of fabric so you have poly cotton you have nylon and all these fibers coming in and somehow when i wore them i just didn't feel fashionable though it was in fashion so your georgettes and um poly cottons with neon shades were all in fashion or trending but i didn't feel fashionable because to me fashion meant something that really is an extension of your skin it's something that you're very comfortable in and um is the cloth useful like somehow fashion to me 
is not just fashionable when it's on your body, but can it hold a sack of potatoes? Does it have the tactile strength to do that? Um, is it useful in capillarity? Like, can it absorb? Okay, now if I take a cotton sari, literally what I'm wearing now is pure cotton. I wear pure silk. I like to wear pure wool. Uh, and so I know if I drop some water now, I can use this and it's going to absorb that water. And so it's also useful. Like it's a real cloth. It's real fiber. So it's not only visual to me. Um, and I think the colors that I look at, I, I honestly find no better palette than just nature itself. And nature can be wild. It has neon shades in the most unexpected places, but somehow it makes sense in that entire ensemble. So I'm still, uh, what do you say, very attracted to those sort of palettes which are more nature oriented. So that is very fashionable to me and timeless. Thank you, thank you, Molly. I really love that because it really brings us down quickly to textiles and the resources and what is actually the clothing on our bodies and where does it come from. So we'll turn to uh, Maheen for the first part of the show. And Maheen, a lot of t-shirts and pants are grown and sourced in Pakistan. I know textiles are very important to the economy and they count for over 61% of the country's total exports and employ about 40% of the country's industrial workforce. But the textile industry has historically not been as water con conscious as they really need to be or should be, especially in the midst of climate change. Pakistan for the last 20 years has consistently ranked among the top 10 most vulnerable countries on the climate risk index, while emitting less than 1% of the world's planet warming gases, of course. And of course, there were the floods in Pakistan last year. With all that said, I wanted to ask you about the story of textiles, fashion, and water in Pakistan. What is the current role of textile and fashion industries in the country? And how does that relate to how water is used and valued? So that's a really good question. Um, and I'd say that the statistics you've just put kind of gives an idea of how important the sector is for Pakistan. But if we kind of take it further and put some more statistics, since, you know, that gives that sort of evidence uh, to that statement is because about 8.5% of the total GDP is contributed from the textiles industry itself. So that also kind of gives you an idea. Then Pakistan is also one of the largest producers of cotton. It ranks around somewhere in the first five. And that means that around 15% of the total land area is actually given for cotton growing. So that also makes it that it's not just important financially, but the idea that so many people are employed in that particular sector gives that importance because that is how big the sector is. And that's where the importance kind of, you know, we're still relying on it as one of the biggest industries that we have at the moment. But I think it's also very important because of the kind of fabrics we have and which are very indigenous to particular areas of Pakistan itself and, you know, how we've kind of produced it and, you know, all of those. But when we particularly also talk about how Pakistan has been one of the most vulnerable countries when it comes to climate change, I think that's something that we also see. But for most Pakistanis, and I think for most people, when we think about water as a problem, we tend to think of it in scarcity terms. And we do not think of flooding, for instance, as something which is of a problem or a physical risk. But interestingly, for the past couple of years, we've seen actually not just flooding that has happened this last year, which kind of is a big example of climate change. And I think we kind of see it now physically. But I think some every particular year, there is flooding in Karachi. 
which is one of the biggest cities, or rather the biggest city in terms of population in Pakistan. And Karachi is also a port city. And it's also one of the largest producers of textile itself. So that particular flooding events that happens on a regular basis is also the cause of financial losses for all of these suppliers who are based in that particular city. So that also tells that, you know, by the end of the day, this physical risk where there is abundance of water and it cannot be managed does produce a problem for those who are actually wanting to proceed with industry, let whatever, it could be textile industry or it could be other industry, but by the end of the day, there are financial implications. So it's not just this. Plus, I think eventually you realize that water is very much contextual. While there is a problem around the world, you have to realize how water is contextual and how those solutions are embedded in those local contextual problems and how they're kind of taken forward. So with that said, I think well, there are the industry itself, as well as I think the NGO sector and the governments are realizing that there needs to be enough importance given to water. And I think the biggest uh, reason that I say that is because in 2018, we finally had a national water policy. So before 2018, we did not have a national water policy in place. The water is something that was embedded in the agricultural policies, in ministry, in, in the commerce policies, in other policies, but itself, I think the physical coming together of a national water policy and having it in place is evidence to the fact that this is something that needed to have more importance. And interestingly, all four provinces had been a signatory to that. And eventually that means that once the national water policy is in place, it kind of trickles down to provincials to kind of implement that water policy in by developing acts. So I think that has to be one evidence that some amount of importance has been now given to the water itself. But even from, I think, uh, other projects that are now taking place in Pakistan, let that be run by WWF Pakistan or, for instance, GIZ or for water aid point of view or from what we are doing at AWS. I think we realize that it is important that Pakistan needs to realize that this is going to further exasperate if it's not addressed at this particular moment. Because year on year on year, we kind of see that physical evidence of you know what's happening in the country not just scarcity that people tend to think, and that's something that I'm repeating, but also physical abundance of water is a problem. So that is a physical risk. It brings problems to uh, businesses with reputational risks of how they're operating, as well as I think for regulatory purposes, it also has that amount of risk. So I think all of these are tied together, but I will still say that businesses still need to pay more heed to water. And when you talk about climate change, it's not just carbon and having that myopic thought process and thinking that, you know, by the end of the day, climate change is water change is also important. So I think there needs to be more uh, importance that needs to be given to water in order to kind of proceed with either developing mitigations or adapting accordingly to it. I think that was a great overview and to see the landscape going from, um, you know, how important the these industries are to, to GDP and how much land in the country is devoted just to growing cotton, 15%. And then the role of Karachi as ports. Um, and I love what you mentioned about the importance for, nas for national water policy in 2018. That wasn't that long ago. No. That was not that long ago. Yeah. And that's great because in another episode, we actually talked about climate agreements. We talked about, um, you know, uh, with, with Agua about how, um, how we can make these national policies more robust and to go through, um, you know, are we considering this about water? Are we considering this? Are we considering this? That kind of checklist. So I really appreciate what you said about context too and looking at solutions um, and about how, you know, businesses are starting to change. It sounds like, um, especially beyond the, 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 the lens of carbon. Um, 
And I was wondering if you could more specifically tell us some of the problems with water um, in these businesses in textile, fashion, in, a, in, in the factories, in manufacturing. Uh, what are some specific problems? And then what are some specific um, you know, solutions that you've seen? So with problems, I think when we talk about the sector per se, and if, for instance, we are looking worldwide with textile manufacturing or with textiles itself, I think the first would be transparency. I think it's very important for not just the supply chains, but also for brands and together as the sector to kind of have some amount of transparency in their systems. And while kind of, you know, coming out from that, it's something that's been mentioned, I think, in this in one of the CDP reports that was around, published, I'd say, around two years back, or I'd say three years back, that uh, transparency and disclosure on water is actually among is actually pretty low among a lot of companies which are in the barrel and the textile sector. So not just manufacturing or supplier sites, but altogether in the sector. And it's only about 54% of a payroll and textile sector in total brands, manufacturers, and retailers who actually fail to report crucial water-related information, even if it's through CDP or GRI or you know along those lines. So when requested, and or for instance, requested by the investors or purchasers in 2019. So it's just that only 21% of those largest suppliers or those largest 100 apparel and textile companies by market cap actually reported those water-related data through CDP. So that kind of shows you that how important transparency is. Because once your organization or you're the manufacturing sites or the brands, they're transparent, I think it kind of gives you more accountability. And that accountability kind of tends to, for any a manufacturing site or industry or for brands to be uh, more uh, conscious of what they're doing. I think the second problem for at least uh, Pakistan in particular would be the water quality. So it's not just the abstraction. People tend to think it's just the water usage that, you know, by the end of the day, it boils down to how much water is being used in the processes, the manufacturing. And that too, interestingly, is uh, very important because it's just not the manufacturing side of things that tend to take up a lot of water. It's also the production of cotton that tends to take up a lot of water. So you have to realize that during that supply chain, where the water is being used and how that water is being used. So when you're kind of addressing that problem, it's not just in the manufacturing side, but also at the production of that particular resource. And that is why I think that being part of that AWS entire concept that we'll discuss further as well, it's to take that entire supply chain into context. So I think it's not just, and when I come to water quality now that you know we've talked about abstraction, is that water quality tends to get degraded. And that's something which is very visible to people who are actually living in those areas. Because giving you an example, uh, one of we have a drain which is known as Hudiara drain, which is now known as Hudiara drain. But interestingly, that wasn't a drain. Years back, it was actually just a uh, just a river channel that was coming out of the river Ravi. But now, because of so many industries being on Hodiara drain, that has actually transformed into a drain. So that gives you that idea that how much water quality has exasperated over the years. And obviously, considering that industry is placed on those drains, exactly on those drains along the line, how much that water quality has degraded over time. So I think water, the pollution itself and how that impacts communities that live around it and how that also creates that transboundary because whoever is going to be using that water downstream is obviously going to be facing problems, even if that water is eventually going into for agriculture purposes or that sort. So let it be transparency, water pollution problems. And I think for the third case, I'd say 
having to understand that by the end of the day, supply chains and all of supply chains and the problems throughout the supply chains need to be understood, which means we need to build better resilient supply chains. And that's something that's not happening because the entire supply chain for the sector is not considered. We tend to think of things in silos or we tend to break it down into manufacturing, production, and that because it's a, it's a complex supply chain for the sector itself, and because the operations are not owned by the brands, for instance, I think it tends to complicate things more. So it's important that the entire supply chain is identified and then actions are taken accordingly. Yeah, I had this question about the difference between a supplier and a brand. So could you, uh, could you tell, our, um, tell our audience or help uh, educate me a little bit on you know, the different um, interests between those two positions? So interestingly, businesses tend to run in two ways. So there could be organizations who own their own operations. Food and beverages tend to operate in that direction. But it, when, when it comes to the textile sector particularly, a lot of them tend to operate in a supplier uh, brand kind of a position. So which means that you might be buying from uh, a certain brand. But by the end, they could have multiple suppliers. And a lot of these brands also tend to have same suppliers. So it all, all kind of depends. And those suppliers could be based in completely different parts of the world. So if, for instance, if there is a European-based brand or an American-based brand, which means that their suppliers could be based in India, Pakistan, China, Vietnam, Myanmar, and other uh, textile-producing countries. So by the end of the day, you kind of disjoint that these suppliers can be providing to multiple brands and those particular brands can have multiple suppliers. So it is very interesting that this not only complicates the process, but also makes it very difficult to kind of, uh, you know, jot down who that supplier is. But obviously considering that these brands know who their suppliers are and they tend to keep that into position, but it's very important that these are two different uh, methods on which businesses tend to usually run. So interesting. I'm just being real. I'm really aware right now. I'm wearing a sweater from J. Crew, and I'm just thinking, oh, where was this grown? <laughs> um, where, yeah, where was? I'm just thinking a lot about that right now, and I'm thinking a lot about the problems that you laid out, especially with water quality and degradation. And so I'm really glad to be transitioning to this uh, so a solution and the work that Alliance for Water Stewardship is doing. So I, yeah, I'd like to ask you, what is the Alliance for Water Stewardship? Uh, the standard specifically, what does it do for whom? So basically, the Alliance for Water Stewardship, or AWS, and do not confuse this with Amazon Web Services because a lot of people tend to do that. So probably when you Google it, uh, Google it with Alliance for Water Stewardship. So AWS is essentially two things. It's a membership-based organization whose member base includes different businesses, uh, different NGOs, as well as public sector organizations who've kind of come together to develop uh, standard, an international standard for freshwater resources, which is also known as the Alliance for Water Stewardship Standard or the International uh, Stewardship Standard. And if you go to our website, which is A4WS, you'll be actually, you anybody as a matter of fact, would be able to download the standard and see how the standard has been developed. Now, what the standard does is that it's kind of developed around the concept of water stewardship. A lot of people might not know and may interchangeably use the concept of water stewardship and water management. So very quickly, I'll kind of tell how what the difference is. Now, water management tends to kind of uh, focus more on your internal efficiencies and internal operations of any organization. So a lot of internal processes, governance, and how that works. But what stewardship does is that it kind of builds from the concept of water management, but it goes 
out of your fence line or where a certain operation takes place. So which means that by the end of the day, if you are putting stewardship into practice, you will not just be taking actions uh, for your organization, but you will actually be stepping out and you will be taking actions for the catchment or the watershed or the basin you're operating in, which is a larger area. And that is something that you will not just be doing by communicating and consulting and engaging with the stakeholders which are within your organization, but you will also be doing it with stakeholders that are reliant upon the same resource or same water resource, could be groundwater or surface water. So while people tend to interchangeably use the, ter the two terms, which is water management and stewardship, I think it's important that they do realize that how they're different. Because when you're thinking about water management, there's a possibility that you, know, you can have an organization who is very water management uh, oriented. So which means that they're very efficient, they're very productive, and they've been using their water very properly. But there could be an organization right next who might be polluting or might be abstracting a lot more water. So by the end of the day, if you think, about, if you think that you know, if their business is going to be affected by somebody else in the same vicinity, then yes, 10 years down the line, there's a possibility that there's not enough water for that particular industry to actually survive in that particular area. So that kind of gives you that idea that why is it important to kind of move along from water management to stewardship and how important it is now for businesses to think that they need to go around and outside the concept of water efficiency and quality and think about water holistically. So that's how the standard has been built. If any, if anybody who's interested in knowing about the standard, they can easily go on our website. They could find the standard. Uh, they could download it. It's a completely free of cost, and it comes with a guidance document as well that gives you an idea of how would you interpret the standard. It's been built on different number of criteria and steps and indicators and tells you how to interpret it with the guidance document. Yeah, that's great. I So the standard is a series of questions. Is that right? Yes. And... So for in your work, are you going to a factory or you work, are you working with suppliers directly to walk them through um, the standard or how does that work? So basically what AWS is, is done is that what we, uh, they've developed a standard. So what we do is that we, as the vision is and the mission is that we try and we ignite and nurture what needs to be done for water stewardship. We per se at AWS, we are the standard owners. We do not consult each and every business side to go and you know tell them how to do water stewardship or you know follow the standard but what we do is we develop an ecosystem for different players to learn and you know build their capacity on water stewardship so that they have something by the end of the day where they understand how water stewardship can be done according to the standard but yes uh, based being based in pakistan in the past couple of years trying to build that ecosystem i've actually interacted with a lot of businesses and with a lot of suppliers and considering that the standard is for water stewardship it's not just limited to the textile sector. So any water using industry, by the end of the day, let it be for the food and beverage uh, sector or pharmaceutical sector or the textile sector or the agriculture sector can go and utilize and implement the standard. So by the end of the day, we're not just limited to the textile sector. We are actually uh, focusing on a lot of water intensive businesses or uh, organizations who use water. So we try to build up an ecosystem in any place or region that we're in so that they can understand how water stewardship would be used. And then we have consultants and we have auditors who do that. But we per se ourselves, we do not go and uh, you know help single sites or single businesses to go and know how to implement, but we're the ones who actually build the capacity. So we do trainings and we build awareness and we do uh, advocacy sessions and awareness sessions. And we've also built up a lot of resources on our website that can be used by anybody so that they could you know have, uh, have an understanding around the system 
So it could be self-paced learning. It could be through the trainings that we give out on a regular basis uh, in person. So there are a couple of ways where you could kind of go and learn about AWS, but there is a lot of variation of work that is being done around the globe with all these priority sectors that I just mentioned where AWS is being used. That's great. I'm just thinking in my head, what a, st what a standard might look like for my life, just like a, a water stewardship for Judy checklist. Um, just thinking through what questions that might be. So my last question for you at this point, um, you mentioned earlier about indigenous perspectives and I wanted to touch on that um, before we turn to Molly. So can you talk about um, that perspective and how that shows up in your work? So that's a very interesting question. And I think I'd like to answer it by saying that if you ever go through, if you ever have a chance to go through the standard and the guidance, you'll see that the word itself, the term indigenous has been used in this standard and the guidance document about 16 times. And because the standard is built around stakeholder engagement and it tells you to go outside your fence line, to go and engage with those stakeholders, to take their perspective and to also respect, measure and identify whatever their needs are, whatever their water rights are. It kind of gives you the how important it is for the standard uh, to respect those indigenous perspectives. And it's not just that the standard is going to just tell you to do it. But by the end of the day, because it is built in a system where it's verifiable and it's made sure that you know the credibility is done for anybody who's getting eventually going to get certified for that particular standard is going to make sure that all of these things are addressed. So it's not just the indigenous perspective that's kind of embedded in the system and the standard itself, but as a matter of fact, when the standard was being developed itself, we actually had one of uh, the uh, one of Aboriginals be a part of the process and be a part of the technical committee while developing the standard itself. So I think it's not it's it's a completely holistic process where it's important that that idea of how local context is important is built in the system because by the end of the day, the standard is not prescriptive. It is not going to tell Molly or Judy or uh, you know uh, anybody or Dakota that you know this is something what you need to do. It's going to ask you those particular questions and then the solutions are built in those local indigenous ideas of how you can proceed with answering those questions. So I think that that entire concept of locality and that is actually built inside uh, and embedded in the system and in the standard. I think that's a great transition for Dakota. Um, we're gonna hear about Molly's work now. Thanks. Thank you, Mahin. So, so far we've talked about how significant the textile industries are in Pakistan with a focus on the contextual importance on some of the water problems in the industry and looked at the Alliance for Water Stewardship Standard to address ever-changing water problems, right, within these industries and businesses. So. At this time, I'd like to shift gears and ask Molly about a different way of producing, perhaps looking through a lens of clothing and fabricated materials, one that comes out of rural India. So Molly, can you tell us what handlooming is and the role of handlooming in India? Yeah, I said, I said I'm going to try to answer that because it's a very big question for the world's largest producer of cotton, pretty much, I think. There's between China, Pakistan, India, and the US, it's always up and down. Um, but yeah, so a hand loom is basically a manual loom. It's where a human being operates the loom using their limbs. There's many variations now of solar-powered looms, power looms, etc., where maybe there's one limb used, and then the rest is by solar or another electricity or power source. And then there's the power loop. India is the largest producer of handloom in the world. 
currently, about 85%, and I'm not exactly sure on the exact percentage, but the largest production of handloom world over is from India. And then therefore it's not surprising that it is the second largest employment in the country. Um, the, the cottage industry in India is huge. It's a very, it's a subcontinent, it's massive, we're very diverse. And handloom weaving is the largest cottage, cottage industry, which means, so when I say cottage industry, uh, at least how I used to imagine it when I was young was this little cottage with people sitting around all involved in doing something in the value chain. And it literally is that from what I have seen in my work. And so I want to talk about, I, I think I'll just give an example so that it's slightly easier to understand uh, how embedded it handloom is in the social fiber. Um, it's not, it's not devoid, like exactly how Mahin has said earlier, a lot of people are thinking in silos and that's how large scale production works because there's expertise and focus on one part of the production and value chain. And that's how all the systems, the machinery, everything is built according to that. So to give you an example of, to me, what, what when I say handloom and I'm talking about how uh, integrated, how it's a whole ecosystem, I'll use an example. Uh, there is a village I visited in West Bengal in India, in, a, in rural West Bengal, and they grow a certain kind of paddy rice in that village. And what has rice got to do with cotton? What has it got to do with weaving? The paddy that they grow has the perfect starch for them to starch the yarn that is woven in that village, which is uh, muslin cotton, a very, very fine count of cotton. Um, if you don't use that starch, the threads break. So it's a very fine cotton that power loom actually cannot do because power loom is a lot of metal. It's a lot of, you know, it doesn't have embodied intelligence. It doesn't have embodied knowledge of how to use the loom. That paddy is grown, the starch is used for the yarn, the yarn is spun in the village. Ginning, which is the removing of the cotton seed is done by hand, made into yarn, uh, then dipped into the starch, put on the loom, and the reed, which is used on the hand loom, comes from a certain plant, which is a wild plant, which grows in the little lagoons and little ponds that are in the village. And so it's strong enough to keep the threads in place, but not, it's not weak enough to let them break. And when they wash it, there is no microfiber and there is no, uh, what do you say, synthetic or chemical additives that's going into the gray water. So it's like, a, like the, whole, the whole chain of, of production seems very sustainable to me. And what's happening uh, with cotton in the country, what's happening with the power loom industry in our country, and what's happening with the whole clothing value chain is extremely unsustainable and uh, extremely worrying. Um, India has a huge hub for textile, like Pakistan, and um, a huge hub for synthetic dyes, which is again part of uh, the textile value chain, uh, to an extent where uh, we have parts of uh, Tamil Nadu in India, in South India, where coconut trees, you, you harvest the coconut, you cut open the coconut, the water inside is colored. That's how disastrous the situation is. And so to me, the question is why? Why are we heading in that direction? Um, when it is the second largest employment in the country? 
it just logically does not make sense to me. If we had no hand loan, if we had no sustainable, traditional, you know, thousand odd years of knowledge of how to make this fabric that I'm wearing, if we didn't have that and you need to clothe the nation, okay, I understand that there could be well-intentioned measures to like boost cotton production and get in power looms and feed and clothe the country. But it is the second largest employment in the country. So why do we have unsustainable and rather dangerous textile production systems in place? So that's something I grapple with. And um, though I have worked more closely, like literally on the fiber and with dyes and design and circular economy and market, um, something that has worried me and continues to worry me is uh, the actual seed itself, because like I said, I always have preferred natural fibers, be it linen, be it cotton, be it wool, silk, etc. Um, but India is one of the largest producers of cotton. And we have one of the largest numbers of farmers suicide because of the very cotton that they grow, which is, you know, it's BT cotton. It's supposed to be pest resistant which is a long staple cotton, which then supports large mills and then the cotton supply chain. Uh, Indigenous cotton is a short staple cotton. Indigenous cotton has to be used by hand. I mean, most of it is done well with hand. And so the introduction of long staple cotton itself is to go back into British colonial times where it was sent to the mills in Manchester and those machines needed long staple cotton. And based on that supply chain, we still have our large mills running in the country, which then forces a lot of farmers to continue to grow BT cotton. Indigenous cotton is on its way out. I mean, there are lots of people doing good work with preserving seed and indigenous cotton, which means it's a short staple cotton, which means there's a lot more hand involvement. So it's hand spun and hand woven. At least two thirds of the process has to have human interaction, which Currently, the textile chain is, you know, decimating rapidly. Thank you, Molly. So you've just described the relationship between hand looming and water and people incredibly well. And I wonder from your perspective, in the ways you just mentioned, it might be on its way out, though you are very deep seated in hand looming. And I wonder from your perspective, how hand looming can contribute to a more sustainable relationship for people their clothing and the environment, and to kind of push on those industries? Or perhaps could hand looming be considered a form of activism? And in what ways and what forms? Um, I, I, I don't actually think hand loom is on its way out. I think, um, I think it's, we're doing well. We're doing well. We have pro- hand loom has proven itself time and again. It's one of the you know, pillars, the, one of the cornerstones of the whole quit India movement that Gandhiji had with the British. It's like, we will make our own fabric. We will make our own salt. So, and Handloom did that. Handloom did that when India got independence. In my most recent experience, even with the pandemic, Handloom cooperatives, and here I'm talking about cooperatives are very important in sustaining the, the kind of fluxes that economies go through the volatile nature of economies and livelihood. No 
in India, a lot of people in the handloom industry to uh, migrate to urban centers to become cab drivers, watchmen, whatever you know they could uh, try and do as a livelihood because the handloom industry wasn't getting enough support. They weren't earning enough being a handloom weaver. And so they were looking for better income and a source of income or more diverse income in the family. But the overall, the picture, it's, it's um, we're as much in a position to propel handloom forward as we are in a position to lose it. So it's always this, this slightly uh, thin, this thin line that we're walking. But I have a lot of hope for handloom because we have, I would say, a collective memory of fabric, of textile, of uh, traditional wear, even talking about uh, saris, talking about salwar kameezes, talking about kurtas, panchis, dhotis. Um, people are, a lot of our population is still wearing these clothes. Yes, a lot of it is powerloom today, but still there is a pride in handloom. There is a certain pride of place in collective memory, not just memory, in current usage as well. Uh, on top of which, I, I'm not sure exactly how to say this. Um, handloom brings you closer to working with your hands. If you want to find out how, it's really not that difficult. We have, so this is the thing of bridging the gap between what um, like a producer picks up a really nice handloom sari in say an exhibition. Now we're saying, please come and see how it's done. We'll come and do a workshop with you. Do you want to learn how to work with cotton? Do you want to try and see the handloom and see if you can work it? Do you want to learn how to spin a bobbin? And I don't know, I feel like this is one of those industries where there's a lot of honesty, there's a lot of transparency because there's nothing to hide. There are no synthetic editors. There's no you know, crazy, in the sense, of course, they are using chemical dyes on handloom, but the process of handloom itself is not a big secret. In fact, people are like, do you want to learn how this whole thing works? Because it's so complex. It's, it's a daily mathematical equation that the weaver kind of navigates with the loom. And it's not an easy thing for, it's not an easy thing for anybody can operate a power loom. If you know the switches and the controls, yes, you can operate the power loom. This is coming under cottage industry. It's coming under skill, under an art form. Uh, if you are supporting handloom, you're literally su supporting an art. It's kind of like the same parallel that I would draw with real food or slow food, real ingredients, old recipes, and keeping making the old uh, recipes and the sort of unknown recipes mainstream. The same is happening with textile. It's just a few years later than the food uh, the curve that's been happening with the food revolution in India. So textile is, you know, 10 years ago, okay, 15 years ago when I was, you know, working in exhibitions trying to talk about organic millet, people were like, what is millet? What is organic? At that point, if, you know, I try to also talk about textile, it would be like a complete wall. Like, what are you even talking about? Fabric is fabric. But now, in India at least, and of course globally, People are waking up to textile. Where is it being grown? What kind of cloth is it? What is the technique? Is it handloom? Who's the weaver? Where are they based? 
questions are coming up. So I think it's equal part uh, consumer. I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to say responsibility because that's very heavy. I don't think it's right to say it's anybody's responsibility to you know necessarily, not everybody has the mind space. Not everybody has, um, you know, lived realities are very different. Not everybody has that sort of uh, liberty to say, I want to be 100% ethical in everything that I uh, buy and wear and use. There's layers, you know, in, in how people relate with all this. But um, there is a huge section of people, and I'm talking about rural India as well as urban India, which is the huge class divide. I mean, the gap between the rich and poor in India is massive. But there is still a huge market in rural India because the memory is still there of real fabric. And in urban India, people are getting interested in food, in cloth, in other cottage industries, in leather, in, in, in you know, pottery. So I have a lot of hope. And what also gives me hope is that it remains the second largest employment in India. If it was, you know, 16th on the list or 25th, then I, you know, I'd be, I would feel like we're, you know, in, heading in the direction of anti, you know, mummification of a craft. And then it's in a pretty museum saying, this is a hand loom. This is what it used to look like. And these are the people, this is what a weaver looked like. But they are here. They're with us. We're, weavers look like us. It's the second largest employer in the country. Bali, uh, thank you for uh, sharing your hope when it comes to not just the continuation of hand looming, but also the effects um, day to day from hand loomers and how that actually uh, expands onto society as a whole, as you say, biggest industry in, in all of India. Um, and so I wonder if we consider hand looming and what you've shared, if perhaps like what could mass produced or machine processes of current fashion world, uh, what could they learn from hand looming? Like if we were to have that conversation with those groups, like what would that look like? Um, it would look like a very, very beautiful way of being a patron to somebody's, I mean, beyond excellent skills of navigating material. So if if you if if you could patronize that, instead of patronizing sweatshops and patronizing underpaid labor and patronizing excess water use and pollution, if you could just shift that saying, good gosh, look at this exquisite skill that people have. Look at this, you know, incredible embodied knowledge, and they're here with us, transparency. Show the people who make the fabric. Show the people who are growing the cotton. And not, I, I, I don't know your policy on, on words in this podcast, but not to glamorize or do any sort of prostitution of poverty sort of shots saying, here's the cotton farmer, you know, and here's the weaver. Like truly with politics of representation, authentically show everybody and patronize the work that they do. Give them the dignity of labor, not just, you know, not, of course, the payment is a whole other thing. Pay them well, but also show the people because uh, there is a certain, what do you say? Every time the farmer is growing a crop, it's that one crop. 
and then they have to start from scratch. It's very dis different if I open up my design uh, you know, software and I say, hey, I want to work on a daffodil design, but tomorrow maybe it's going to be on a sari and maybe day after actually it's a tablecloth. I get to navigate that with a certain um, sense of ease if I know software and computers and literacy, et cetera. But to me, what, what I'm talking about is uh, a current embodied relationship that these producers have with the material, whether it's the cotton farmer or the person doing the hand ginning for hand loom, the spinning of the yarn, the weaving of the yarn, the coloring of the dye, the washing of the yarn after you've dyed it, after doing the modern thing. Every single thing is a current negotiation with material, which can never happen before or after. So recognize that. Recognize it as a craft and not just a skill or paid labor. Because um, if you could do that with the kind of, um, kind of platforms that large like fast fashion has or large corporations that are involved in fashion and fast fashion have, that could be really revolutionary. Not, not transparency for the sake of just, you know, ticking off the right boxes of whatever token, token representation, but truly, truly do that. That would be amazing. Thank you, Molly, very much. Um, I think, Judy, we can now transition and open the conversation up. Thank you, Dakota. Thank you, Molly. For this next part, um, Maheen, I'd like to ask, do you have a question for Molly? I actually do, because I think she's kind of mentioned how important this local art is to the people. And considering I come from a very scientific background, I'd like to ask this question that how do, you know, these uh, people, how do they manage water resources in their particular, uh, you know, while they're doing this particular craft? I'll answer that with just the one weaving center that I work with right now, though I have visited other places in the country and worked with them. Uh, where I live and work out of currently is one of the one of the driest districts in the whole of the country. Um, just to give you an example, we have crazy fires, wildfires every summer. We just had a massive fire day before yesterday, which you know burned three hills in one shot. Um, People are careful with water here. And one of the things that with which happens with handloom and with natural dyes, because we work with natural dyes, is you use a lot of water. You have to, because you have to clean the yarn, then you have to modern it, then you dye it, then you post wash it. And so you end up using water, even though you're like, can we save this water? No, we can't, because we're choosing to do natural dyes. So there's these additional steps that the fiber has to go through. Uh, a thought process here in this region is water scarcity, but also how to reuse water. So even if we are washing dishes, we, you know, if if you've just finished eating all your vegetables in your rice, we dip that plate in just plain water and then soak water and wash it. And that water with the leftover meal goes to the cattle. That's not thrown away. You know, so it goes, that's their soup. That's their dinner, basically. So that relationship with water is very, what do you say? It, it's again embodied. It's remarkable. It's not something to be taken lightly. So in the process of natural dyes, in this particular weaving center that we set up, we know we're using turmeric, we're using lemon, we're using uh, rubia cordiflora, indigo, pomegranate rind. These are the dyes. None of this is harmful to the human being or to the gray water, 
or to any animal that stops by to you know drink that water and we channel that water into growing vegetables and greens and assorted herbs etc why not because that is how people are in this place when water is scarce you don't take it for granted you try and maximize the use it's not something to be taken lightly you don't waste water it goes to the cat you don't waste the water you can grow something with it or maybe do another additional wash even detergent we use soap nut soap nut has saponins so it is going to remove the grime dust dirt etc but it's not going to affect the grey water and so we are doing this in small ways and then that has its own implications in how we produce soap again with only soap nut and no other chemicals so even in villages if that's going into your grey water then going into a crop we hope because again actually you said this in in one of your questions even if that farmer and the farmer's family is choosing to use soap nut and go organic what if the next door farm is going full on chemical simply because they don't know any better but i would say that the relationship here with water is it's not taken lightly there's still a lot of ritual in place with rains with streams um when when there's a when there's a very difficult summer and then the rains finally come it's it's a very different emotion here it's just like thank you for not forgetting us we we did cut two goats hoping that you know uh, you would listen to our prayers and give us rain so that is how it is uh and i would say that as is happening world over the a lot of um, traditional culture it's it's getting diluted with urban rural sort of things um but uh, sadly again with handloom and with textile the the reverse is also happening where now earlier if you didn't know how to store water now you do earlier if you had to rely on large open ponds and seasonal cultivation now you have technology to drill deep and to put borewells and therefore use excess water therefore move to horticultural crops and water intensive cropping uh, because the subsidy is providing you with you know seed to grow hybrid tomatoes so these are other things that are happening in the region but there is still that bit of the imagination here where you don't take water for granted molly do you have a question for mahin uh yes i had a question for her because from a very practical perspective how do i get hold of your uh in the entire the whole system that you have put in place because i think this is something because we know this we know it in theory you know we know for example especially what you said about indigenous perspective and having them as one of the voices in drafting the entire work that you body of work that you have done so um i think that's very interesting i'm very happy to have learned about your work and the membership model that you have because again this uh, a lot of um, organizations a lot of initiatives have become quite transactional you know so therefore to to have to even have a membership based organization in this day and age is remarkable so i'm curious to know more about your work and see how i can get my hands on it and uh, yeah take get it done here because like i said we have it in theory we want to put it in practice thank you thank you i think that's a very good question and i think that the answer for that will be get in touch via our website we're very 
we tend to get in touch very quickly. We have a very comprehensive website. And now that we've kind of interacted through this uh, setup as well, I think you can always reach out to me. Interestingly, we have a colleague who's also based in India, in Delhi. So I can also connect you to him. And he's, he's also actually doing a lot of work with regards to water. So we have a lot of colleagues and we're based in different parts of the world, different time zones, and they're working in different regions. But I think the first entry point for you would be through our website and kind of going and downloading the standard system. And it's it's very user-friendly, I'd say, as well. If you download the system, it comes with a guidance document. It comes with a scoring document. We it's, Since we do promote a lot of transparency, and our standard also requires industries who are working on the standard to have transparency in their systems, we actually have all the audit reports who are certified with our systems they're actually also uploaded on our website. So it's not just the, that we're promoting transparency and just saying it and stating it as a part of our standard, but as you can see, the sites who are working with us, they have their standard reports on the websites as well as all the audit reports. But I think the first entry point, would you, would you could write an email to me or you could go to our website, which is a4ws.org and probably get started. And you'll have a lot of information there that you could kind of you know get started with and learning about the system. Thank you so much, Rahim. You're welcome, Manisha. Dakota, did you want to? Did you have a question or want to say something? I do have a, a question, actually. So, Mahin, um, in response to Molly's uh, response, uh, I wonder if you have any reflections uh, based off of your scientific background and or the work that you're doing. Um, if what Molly shared, if there's anything that you'd like to respond to. I I think, what, I think what Molly has said is something that is very interesting. And the way she's kind of put it, that this is not just something that people are dependent on, but it is an art. And considering that although I've been working with water and I've been working with the textile sector, but for me, the entire process of you know having to work with water this closely is still very new. I mean, I've worked with the organization for four years, but interestingly, prior to this, all my experience was with the hydropower sector. So for me, it was a lot of capacity building when I actually started working with industries and understanding how actually, how important water is and how important these traditional methods are because they actually keep intact and they actually keep intact the idea of what water stewardship is. So what Molly is actually telling and how they're practicing these people, how they're practicing with water and how they're using water and how they're kind of thinking around the lines, how they'd recycle it, reuse it, put it back in the system so that it kind of lasts. That is the definition of water stewardship. So those indigenous practices or those local context is very important even when you're implementing the standard. And that is why the standard constantly tells you to not just have that engagement with the ones that you're working within that vicinity, let it be any business, but to have that stakeholder engagement with the communities who are reliant about water, other businesses who are reliant upon that water, other residentials, the government sector, so when you talk about water, it's not just you thinking around those efficiency and productivity and quality oriented things. But when you're thinking about water, you're thinking around what the standard says, which is water governance issues, sustainable water balance issues, water quality issues, wash issues, which are very important, which is water and sanitation and hygiene and important water related areas. So they understand completely how important water is, but they think around going beyond water quality and efficiency that a lot of businesses tend to limit themselves on. So I think that's something very interesting. Thank you, Mahin, because I didn't think of it that way, the way you put it. 
you know, I, I'm just like, yeah, this is what we do. This is what we do. And then we do that. But I didn't you know, bring it together. Um, uh, another thought crossed my mind, uh, Mahin and, and Dakota and Judy. I don't know if this is there in the US or Mexico or Pakistan. Um, because I work closely with primary producers, I tend to lose sometimes um, the big picture, focus on, on the big picture. And so, like, for example, roughly, you know, just a single T-shirt or one piece of fabric, say there's 3,000 odd liters of water that gets used or some statistics for that. I'm very bad with statistics. Um, but my question is, why don't I know enough of, why don't, have, why don't I have kind of the same information about water audits with car production, with cell phone production, with, I don't know, synthetic uh, dye production, pharmaceutical, you know, how much does it cost to get one tablet or one vaccine? I don't know, how much water does it use? And this whole thing of just water in the landscape, um, you know, if we have a water audit saying the old traditional water harvesting tanks, 300 odd acres large tanks could sustain whatever number of people, a certain population, and now we say, hey, let's uh, drill a bore well. What is the actual audit with water? I don't know. And I, I, don't, I don't think I've even had these questions as much as I have thought and bothered about how many liters goes into making a t-shirt. You know? So I also, have ten, I also tend to narrow it down to textile or to food or one crop, but not the, the, larger, the larger ecosystem out there that's growing and the water stress. Um, it's just a thought that crossed my mind, and I don't know if you guys have similar questions in in your regions. Interestingly, if I could just add to that, Manisha, I think that's very interesting. But that I'll give you some idea, considering now that you are uh, you know curious about water. We do work with the we've started you know currently working with the pharmaceutical sector. So interestingly, there are a lot of other sectors that do use water extensively besides the textile sector and the food and beverage. It is the pharmaceutical sector. It is the motor car industry. And it is also a lot of the ICT sector that uses quite a bit of water. And just like uh, the textile sector, the ICT sector has a similar idea of supplier and uh, you know the brands that they're providing to. So it's exactly spread out like this. So I think now with, uh, you know considering ICT is still a comparatively newer sector, I'd say this information has started kind of building up so now with time, I think eventually you'll have this understanding. And with the UN Water Conference just also coming up, I think there's going to be more talk about water because I think it's, it is time. You cannot talk about climate change without having to talk about water. It just, it's just not possible anymore. Thank you. Judy? I just have two more questions for each of you. What is your call to action for our listener? So if you could leave our listener with one thing in their mind, um, what would that be? And what gives you hope? So what is your call to action for our listener and what gives you hope? Judy, would you want me to go first or Manisha wants to go first? Go first, go first, Mahi. <laughs> okay. So for me, I'd say considering let's, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure of how many people tend to listen or what kind of audience tends to listen to these podcasts, but for everybody who has a certain idea or who working with the, with the textile sector, the work that we do at AWS will give you this idea of 
this call to action that a just not implement the standard but for us i'd say that we have a textile working group where we have people from different ngos from different brands as well as from you know different suppliers who are a part of this working group where we tend to talk about water in this very holistic way not just about using the standard but how water is being used in their particular supply chains along these five outcomes that i've just talked about so i'd encourage all of you to go check and you know be a part of that uh, textile working group but also that we've developed a system uh, where a lot of suppliers can kind of come together and they could also work towards water because the idea for us in water stewardship is promoting collective action is to build uh, you know that scale so that the impact is pretty much visible because by the end of the day the idea that Water stewardship is something that cannot be done just by one site or one brand. It's the idea of taking this in your mind that it's collective action through which we can actually see impact. So that's the kind of thing that I want would want the viewers or, for instance, the listeners to take, that it's just not one industry, it's just not one site, it's just not one brand. Who would, if they would do everything, would create that impact? I would say it's together through that collective action that we could actually see any impact in our water systems. And that water systems will have then a systemic process in order to get to, you know, having that water security that we're talking about. And I know, Judy, you had a second question that I keep forgetting. What gives you hope? Yes, what gives me hope? I think... Now, a lot of people in the climate change arena, they've, start, they've started kind of talking around water and they're kind of emphasizing how climate change is water change. And that's something that I'm also constantly saying because that's something that we're physically seeing. Let it be with having too much water, like the floods in Pakistan, or not having water in Cape Town, I think a couple of years back, or in Chennai, I think two years back. I think both these sides, they're all related to water. So for me, the idea is now having that water in that conversation of climate. And that kind of gives me hope. Thank you so much, Mahin. Um, and Molly? Uh, Judy, just to clarify, is this are these two questions pertaining to water or water and handling? I think however you'd like to answer it, Molly, whatever comes to comes to your mind. Okay. I think with I'll the first part of the question, which is uh, a call to action, I'll choose to answer that with handloom. And um, because again, as Mahina said, the audience for this podcast is everywhere, maybe, or maybe I don't know where the audience is. But what I'd like to say um, is to the audience that's listening with handloom or with hand anything, please choose to engage, just choose to engage. Whether it's in your own home, pickling something or trying out some recipe that you knew from back in the day, or you know that in the next, uh, I don't know, town, there's somebody who's knitting something, or you know that there's an artisanal group that's been making natural dyes, you know, for you know donkey's years, or there's a company that's doing ethically sourced handloom products or handmade products. Try and choose these products um, than the faster, easier option or the cheaper option most often. Of course, it's not feasible for everybody, but yes, that would be my call to action. It's just choose to engage with what you consume. Um, and of course, my other reasoning here 
to would be that your largest organ is your skin you know and clothing is in contact with the, your largest organ day in day out so also choose to look after yourself choose to honor yourself by choosing something handmade so that would be my call to action and what um, the second one is about what gives me hope uh, i have lived in the savanna landscape majority of my life and every summer we lose hope every summer we're like this is the worst place this is the worst situation we just somehow have to survive till the rains come and the rains come sometimes when they come it's too late sometimes when they come it's too much but the rains come and let's not forget that you know um, like i said the skin is the largest organ i'm tying that to textile and hand loom and water is the majority of your body so what gives me hope is that there is a certain section of this human population that is still in touch with their bodies and if you're in touch with your body then you know the relevance of water and we cannot take it for granted please don't take your body for granted don't take water for granted that gives me hope because i know that there's people out there who who are in touch with their bodies with their ecosystem with water and with the world that was a beautiful last thought molly thank you mckean thank you molly so much thank you so much judy thank you dakota thank you judy and thank you dakota